nobody ever has enough screens. Even if you have 12 screens, it's never enough because people are demanding them. And even if no one's come to see this film for like two days, you still have to keep it in because it's a lot of unnecessary politics that I think winds up hurting younger independent filmmakers because they don't have that opportunity. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Rebecca Polly, deputy editor of the Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition since 1920. I am joined today by box office analyst Jesse Rifkin, who is on hand to provide us insight into the continued performance of Avatar The Way of Water, now that it's been in theaters for a month, as well as this weekend's crop of new releases. In our feature segment, we'll be speaking to Karen Coleman, founder and executive director of the nonprofit organization The Future of Film is Female. But before that, Jesse, this is the first time we've uh, had you on the podcast so far in 2023. Did you get a chance to go out and see anything over the holidays? Yes, I did. I saw I Want to Dance with Somebody last weekend, the new Whitney Houston biopic. Unfortunately, as you know, it's not doing well at the box office at all. I actually perform at a piano bar most weekends, and it's one of the most requested songs, I Want to Dance with Somebody. And I got it requested last weekend and the weekend before that, actually. And I asked the patrons, oh, are you requesting the song because you saw the movie? The first person said no. The second person said, there's a movie? Yeah, I was dreading. I was dreading that you would say that or what movie or that's too bad. But uh, I mean, luckily, we are having some uh, good results at the box office, which is what I'm going to kind of pepper you with some questions about. First, backwards looking, I feel like, I mean, we've been talking about Avatar The Way of Water for like six months, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about it for like another six months. 13 years, really. 13 years, <laughs> yeah. And we'll talk about it for another 13 years because it is shaping up to be kind of uh, like the first Avatar when it came out 18 bazillion years ago. You know, it's not very front loaded. It's it's a film that is going to succeed or not. Luckily, it's looking like succeed is, is the right adjective um, based on its hold, uh, especially in, in premium screens. So I feel like, Jesse, we're at a nice, good, like it's been four weekends. It's been a solid month since Avatar The Way of Water uh, came out. You know, what are your thoughts about uh, the box office that we had over this past weekend and just kind of its overall performance at the box office? Sure. So, I mean, the the overall box office is amazing. It's the number two film released from 2022 right now, even though it only had the number five opening weekend. It's possible it could even end up as the number one film released in 2022, because right now that title is uh, held by Top Gun Maverick. But right now, The Way of Water is actually running 11% ahead of Maverick through the equivalent points in release. Uh, You're right. Way of Water has held Amazingly, the opening weekend, it had the number 37 opening weekend of all time, which is actually below a lot of people's expectations. Then it went up a little bit in its second weekend from number 37 to the number 30 second weekend of all time. But it's third and fourth weekends. Then you had a huge jump. The number three third weekend and the number three fourth weekend ever. Uh, in both cases, uh, the two films that beat it, because it was number three on both rankings, one of the two films that beat it for the top third weekend and top fourth weekend of all time was the original Avatar. I was going to say, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so James, James Cameron is monopolizing basically two of the top three biggest third weekends and fourth weekends of all time, because his films don't open big. Uh, Titanic didn't either. You really had to wait a few weeks until it really started 
making a ton of money. Yeah, he's the king of word of mouth. So I guess Maverick was another one that, that definitely benefited from word of mouth going on. But what are, do you think Avatar has a pretty good chance at beating Maverick considering it, I mean, it's still going to have a, a chokehold on the premium screens until, I mean, what's the next thing that comes out that's, that's really going to take Avatar's position on those? Quantumania, I think, around Valentine's Day, the, the, the third Ant-Man film. I think it could beat Maverick. So it's already beaten it globally. Uh, last week, it beat Maverick globally to be the number one film from 2022. Helped in no small part because The Way of Water was released in China, which, which Maverick was mm-hmm. not. But domestically speaking, yeah, I think it absolutely could. Again, it's running 11% ahead right now through the same point in release. Maverick only had those IMAX screens for, I want to say, somewhere around two weeks before... What was the next film that got the IMAX screens? Probably probably Jurassic World Dominion. Probably. I'd have to double check that. But it was probably Jurassic World. They definitely World. didn't have like a free month at the box office where it was just them on those premium screens, more or less. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think it could. I really think it could beat it. Um, it, it. It just goes to show, you know, slow and slow and steady wins the race. Well, from one good bit of news to another good bit of news, uh, this is a film that, that we've been kind of talking about on the podcast, but the universal horror film, Megan, what were we looking at in terms of that release? Because it was something that we were bullish on. I mean, Megan dancing in that trailer looked cool as hell. It certainly uh, got it some social media attention. And overall box office, it's been a good year for horror, at least 2022 was. Yeah, so the projections were between around 24 to $28 million pre-release, and it actually beat that. It opened to $30.4 million in second place behind only The Way of Water. So how, how did Megan do uh, compared to 2022 horror films? Something, something that sticks out at me here is that its cinema score uh, was a B average, which isn't great but also barbarian had a b average and it did pretty well at the box office for horror films so what are we looking at in terms of comps well megan opened above barbarian it also opened above uh, smile from september which was around a 22.6 million and the black phone from last june which was around 23.6 million again uh, megan was above slightly above 30 million okay and those other 2022 horror releases uh, that you mentioned, Barbarian, Smile, The Black Phone, uh, what did we see in terms of second week holds for them? I will tell you exactly. Smile had one of the mildest second weekend declines of any film from last year, actually, whether horror or otherwise, falling a mere 18%. But The Black Phone dropped much steeper than that at 48%. Barbarian a little is somewhere in between the two at falling at 38%. Okay, so that's that's a pretty wide range. Uh, so I think it'll it'll be tough to say what that second weekend drop is is going to be for Megan. But before uh, we look at this upcoming weekend, I want to ask you a little bit about um, a man called Otto, because uh, as you've mentioned in in your reporting of upcoming like Q1 releases, which you can read on BoxOfficePro.com, you know you have Tom Hanks playing sort of a curmudgeonly son of a gun. Um, maybe not the easiest film to market compared to some other Tom Hanks starring films. And however, um, this had a pretty good weekend for, it was a kind of mid range expansion. How many, uh, how many theaters did it expand to this past weekend? 637, but it does fall into that sort of uh, Tom Hanks holiday season, heartwarming kind of film, similar to his 2019 release, a beautiful day in the neighborhood where he played, where he played Mr. Rogers. And this is, I think that's sort of the best case scenario of the sort of box office they're, they're hoping for here. So this uh, expanded from a mere four theaters to 637 ahead of a 
fully wide 3000 plus theater release uh, expansion next weekend. And it actually did pretty well in a mere 637 theaters. So again, not even reaching the thousand theater mark, it still managed to reach fourth place with about $4.2 million. Wow. All right. Good, uh, good, good for that man called Otto. I'm uh, a nice little box office round of applause for him. (laughs) (laughs) Jesse, before we let you go, I want to look a little bit ahead to this upcoming weekend here. Obviously, as we know, January tends not to be the most bumping, raucous month (laughs) at the box office. Um, That said, we do have some things coming out. There is, uh, as you mentioned, the wide expansion of A Man Called Otto. Um, We have the Gerard Butler action movie set on a plane called Plane. (laughs) And there is Warner Brothers House Party, a remake of the 90s movie, which uh, was originally this remake was going to go streaming and, and it was put into theaters, which is a sentence that I always like to be able to say. Warner Brothers has been doing this with other upcoming releases as well. Magic Mike's Last Dance was originally supposed to go straight to HBO Max. Now it's coming out exclusively to cinemas uh, the month after January, in February. Nice. So for these films that are coming out uh, this upcoming weekend, for House Party, for example, uh, what are the, the comps that you're looking for? Obviously, like, the original House Party was back in the 90s, so that's a whole different can of worms in terms of box office. Yeah, there's a very specific subgenre that you might call parties gone wrong movies. <laughs> and uh, the best case scenario might be something like the movie Office Christmas Party with uh, with Kate McKinnon and gang from 2016. That made in the around $55 million. The lower, the middle case scenario might be something like the movie 21 and over from 2013. That one made around $25 million. And a worst case scenario might be something like James Franco and Selena Gomez's project Spring Breakers from 2013. That made less than $15 million. Still, I mean, even less than $15 million is more than $0 million if it had just stayed going only to HBO Max as they originally intended. So I'll take it. <laughs> Speaking of uh, house parties gone wrong, uh, I feel like planes gone wrong is, is another uh, sort of subgenre. I'm thinking like Harrison Ford on a plane, Nick Cage on a plane. Uh, this time we have Snakes, Gerard- Snakes on, on a plane. plane. Uh, this time it's Gerard Butler on a plane in plane. In terms of comps, I mean, I noticed that uh, you have here uh, kind of more recent disaster types films, uh, including 2017's Geostorm, which I saw uh, on 40X and it, it kindled my like 40X and disaster movies just go really well hand in hand. So uh, <laughs> but that aside, comps for plane, what's what's the range here uh, that, that this might be able to gin up at the box office? Well, just like for House Party, I'll give you three films, a best case, a middle case, and a, and a low case scenario. So if you look at Gerard Butler starring action thrillers from the last half dozen years or so, a best case scenario might be a Den of Thieves from 2018. That made around $45 million. Uh, Geostorm, as you mentioned, in 4DX, <laughs> it especially, uh, from 2017, that one made uh, closer to around $35 million. And then a low-case scenario might be his film Hunter Killer, which despite an amazing title uh, in 2018, did not kill, if you will, at the box office. That one made around $15 million. 
Jesse, thank you as always for joining us this week. Now let's move over to our feature interview with Karen Coleman, former director of programming at Brooklyn's Nighthawk Cinema and currently the founder and executive director of The Future of Film is Female, a nonprofit organization devoted to supporting the work of women and non-binary filmmakers in large part by helping them find space on New York City screens, including at the Museum of Modern Art with their Future of Film is Female screening series, the fourth edition of which is coming up this summer. Karen, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. I I remember uh, you were one of the last people I spoke to about exhibition and the future of film is female at Art House Convergence 2020. (laughs) Yeah, you were the last person I had breakfast with in public before the world (laughs) fell apart. Yeah. Oh my God. It's And now here we are three years later, which seems... So strange. <laughs> so strange. Well, thank you for having me, even virtually. So Future of Film is, is Female. Um, when did you start uh, Future? I mean, how far along was it uh, that last pre-pandemic breakfast? <laughs> and how has it changed over these past three years? I mean, well, it started in February of 2018. So we're mm-hmm. about to have our five-year anniversary. Um, and that's when we launched our first uh, t-shirt campaign um, to... Uh, fund um, short films um, in production. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like the very beginning. And it tied into a lot of work I was doing when I was director of programming at Nighthawk. Um, It it was an extension from the Nighthawk Shorts Festival that I founded, um, working with short filmmakers, um, and also sort of like the exhibition part of it of showing women filmmakers in the cinema was already a part of the practice I was doing there. Um, but shortly after uh, we launched that t-shirt campaign, I was asked by MoMA um, to do a screening series there. And it seemed like Feature of Film is Female was the right fit. Um, so then in that July of 2018, we did our first screening series at MoMA. So for the first two years, it was a side hustle, as, <laughs> as is popular now. And then when the pandemic hit and and Nighthawk closed, you know, we were like, oh, we'll be closed for a month, right? Mm, And I and I (laughs) back for the summer. And I was like, after like sleeping all weekend, uh, I was like, okay, well, this will be a good opportunity. I can't not work. This will be a good opportunity for me to officially file for nonprofit status, get my board situated, you know, all that stuff that takes up so much time, but I didn't have time with a full-time job to do it. And then quickly, you know, as everyone was pivoting uh, to virtual stuff, we started hosting screenings and conversations and kind of became very active in that that front. And then it sort of just became all my focus was that. So when Nighthawk reopened, I decided not to go back there full-time and devote all of my time to feature a film as female. So since cinemas have been reopening, it's been pretty much sort of the same thing as before, except in-person screenings and kind of amping up everything else that we're doing. But there's more on the line now post-pandemic than pre-pandemic because I don't have a full-time job. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things that I, I really admire about Future of Film is Female is there are a lot of nonprofits um, devoted to uplifting and supporting female and non-gender binary uh, filmmakers. But this one, a large part of your focus is on exhibition, is on, no, these films need to be screened in person and not just kind of oh, here's a Vimeo link or something like that. Can you talk a little bit about why that was so important to you? Sure. Well, I think it's just inherently being a film programmer. My 
want and desire is to get these things in, in, in a theater. But this also stems from the short film festival, which in 2016, we opened the day after Trump was elected president. And it kicked off a lot of me thinking for like a year about what my role was as a film programmer and ultimately realizing that it was a privileged position of mm-hmm. getting works by marginalized voices onto the screen, um, normalized with audiences, but also getting audiences to experience people who are like them or people who are different than them. So for me, one of my board members says we're the, and, and now what? Because I think a lot of foundations, and it's wonderful to have, you know, they focus on production and getting films made and getting people hired. And then film festivals have done a great job at committing to gender parity in the, in the festivals that they produce. But it's really then kind of like, and there you are, you're like out in the world and where, where do you mm-hmm. go? So our work is really focusing on promoting those films in exhibition settings and working with distributors um, and encouraging distributors to um, devote their resources and time and theatrical schedules to new films directed by women. I think that the whole kind of, if it's a woman or male director, will get work itself out once there's more of an equal representation of the films coming out that you see mm-hmm. in, in theaters. And, you know, we do short film programs and then we do feature film programs. And the past like year and a half, uh, we've been doing a lot of screenings at, at Nighthawk, at my, at my former home, and then also at, at MoMA. And I think that for short filmmakers, they love seeing their work screened in a theater because there's not a lot of opportunities for that to happen outside of the festival mm-hmm. circuit. And that's really exciting. And I think treating short filmmakers on the same level as like a feature filmmaker. So at MoMA, they're joined in conversation with myself and the feature filmmaker for the Q&A. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, instead of having just a shorts program, we'll have their films pre- like screen before a feature. I feel like I haven't done enough for short filmmakers. But the, this past year, but feature films, you know, it's it's so exciting to introduce people to like just new films in general. And, you know, we do like a lot of horror and genre work and Mm -hmm. there's like nothing more exciting than being like, here's this amazing new film. You are going to freak out. Here's Piggy. Mm -hmm. Enjoy, you know, and it's like um, the festival experience without having to (laughs) hunt down all the money. (laughs) Yeah. Or like be away from home for a week or be exhausted or eat crappy food. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, um, they're very, you know, all the future of film as females are very like curated endeavor, but I think that this whole fight for gender parity in the film industry won't be achieved until exhibition and distribution kind of catch up. I feel like one of the reasons why we, that where people make movies is to sh- have that connection with audiences. And as mm-hmm. much as I can provide that, let's do it. You know, you're, you're really invested in, uh, in the need for increased uh, diversity across, like you said, across distribution and exhibition. I feel like that's been more difficult or slower in coming uh, when it comes to exhibition, not through the fault of the exhibitors, but just because there's not as much of an infrastructure maybe in, in how some of these exhibitors can access some of these films or even like know what to search for if it's not already been picked up by like a Kino Lorber or an ISC or a da 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 da. Like there's, yeah. we've seen like over the past few years, there's really a need for everything all theaters, but art house theaters as well to like explore new programming strands and like where you get your films and what kind of films you're getting. I mean, as someone who 
with Nighthawk, obviously, you're like really embedded in the community. How would you, uh, for other exhibitors or other people in kind of the art house scene who are maybe looking for ways to find some of this more, you know, offbeat stuff or stuff that hasn't been picked up by a distributor, or maybe it's hyper local, like, where do you start? Because that's something that I've heard a lot of exhibitors kind of express, there needs to be a, a better way to approach that. I think on a very easy level, um, I think when like exhibitors or like first run bookers go to film festivals is make time for the films that aren't the films that you know you're going to book. <laughs> you know you're you going to be able to see the A24 yes, release you know like in a few months. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I go to TIFF, my, my mission is to watch international independent films directed by women. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I'll go see Hustlers because I can't wait. But, like, you know, <laughs> for the most part, it's like, what's the debut feature film? What are these films that don't have distributors yet? And and I was just talking about this the other day and I, I sound like a broken record. There are so many amazing films that I've seen at TIFF that have gone nowhere. Like they, mm-hmm. especially international films, they might have had a small run in their respective countries, but. Um, especially with horror. I mean, there's some great festival horror oh. films and it's like, I can't, I'm, I'm, have google alerts for like are they ever gonna come out (laughs) i know i have like all my tiff catalogs with the pages in there and i try you know for the i have my upcoming moma feature of film program in june and i'll be bringing some of those from the past years here because Mm -hmm. i just think they're so incredible and the thought of them like literally going nowhere (laughs) Yeah. How do you do that from a logistical, like operational perspective of you need content? There are all these great films out there that don't have yeah. distribution. You just like emailing in the dark? I mean, what's your... I do sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I've I've done that. Like I've um, Instagram mess- messaged filmmakers. Sometimes, you know, if it's like, um, you know, one of the films, I, I wound up showing it at Nighthawk. It's called The Good Intentions and it's from Argentina. Mm-hmm. And I knew another Argentina filmmaker... And I saw that they knew each other on Instagram. And so I was like, can you introduce me to mm. Anna? And they were like, yes. So I'm always like trying to like search and, and find, but a lot of times, you know, there's production companies, email address in catalogs and mm-hmm. I will ask them or I'll ask, you know, people, people for screeners. I think it does require a bit of work to kind of find these offbeat films um, but even, you know, maybe some of the larger films, I mean, you could see like if no one went to see After Sun, even though it was A24, it, it could have kind of not yeah. blown up how it, how it deserved to because it's, it's a magnificent film. I think that it requires a little more work, but I think that anybody, you know, I, I sometimes feel like there's a difference between like the first run bookers who are, you know, really invested in making theaters survive. <laughs> Mm-hmm. by you know having those ticket those coveted ticket sales and then also the film programmers who do repertory but who also should be concentrating on their own local communities and mm-hmm. when you get in that you know how it goes you get in that rabbit hole and you know this one filmmaker and they tell you about this filmmaker and then all of mm-hmm. a sudden you have like a hundred screeners and you don't know what to do <laughs> I don't know if that's just me I'm just like no. ah. <laughs> uh, but like you know it's just sort of like I think what it comes down to is being willing to do the work because a lot of the people who are in that art house scene, I mean, they're they're going to the festivals anyway. They're probably hosting the festivals yes. in, in a lot of cases. Yeah. I mean, 
when when you reach out to these filmmakers, do, do people ever say, "Oh no, sorry, like we're waiting on picking"? Everyone's enthusiastic, pretty yeah, much, I mean, to just let their film be seen. Yeah, I mean, if they if they can't do a, a screening, which I you know understand, and there is a difference between inviting someone to do a screening at MoMA versus doing a screening at Nighthawk in terms of you know MoMA's MoMA, like yeah, MoMA's <laughs> MoMA, yeah. yeah, but also like in terms of like ticket sales and mm-hmm. and how like would that count as a premiere? All that sort of like logistical weird stuff, mm-hmm. but for the most part. No, or I try to incorporate whatever the release is with one of our screenings. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I wind up doing a lot are preview screenings that come out a few days before or a week before, oftentimes mm-hmm. with the filmmaker before it's released. So like we're doing one in February for Baby Ruby um, mm-hmm. before that gets, you know, theatrical release. We're having Bess Wall there to talk about the film. And I think that that kind of helps like the promotion and the excitement and you have people in the theater, we get good attendance. And then I always say, please spread the word. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. well, just for my own, like nosiness and, and curiosity as to how everything works. How do you handle uh, like the, the the sales split for something when it's literally just? It depends. Fortunately, I'm not dealing with any sort of like theatrical bookings like that, and I do think that that is one of the issues, not just simply for like women or non-binary directed films to have an opportunity to get into that theatrical space, but independent and lower budget filmmaking to also get that opportunity to have theatrical space. For Mm -hmm. more than one night um, within the way that the system sort of works. And, you know, it's like nobody ever has enough screens. Even if you have 12 screens, it's never enough because people Mm -hmm. are demanding them. And even if no one's come to see this film for like two days, you still have to keep it in because it's Mm -hmm. a lot of unnecessary politics that I think winds up hurting younger independent filmmakers because they don't have that opportunity. I mean, when I think about when I lived in Los Angeles, like the times I would just happenstance upon a movie because some other movie was sold out and I was like, well, I'm here, I'm going to go see this. And Mm -hmm. I think that like having space for that to happen is, is very, very important. But, you know, it really depends on what the kind of screening I'm doing is, what, like, the pay structure is. So mm-hmm. oftentimes it's, like, a per-ticket fee. So the theater, if the theater is handling, like, the splits and the distribution, that's fine. And then from their profits, I get mm-hmm. I feel fortunate, you know, because I do have a home at Nighthawk, despite, like, not mm-hmm. being on staff there anymore. And, you know, it's nice to know how a cinema operates so, so well. But it's nice to know that, you know, they and other institutions in in New York are invested in this and that they see Mm -hmm. like a value in it beyond like, we're going to make a a million dollars off of this, but that there is like a cultural value in having this. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's kind of where it starts. When it comes to shorts specifically, since I know that's something that you're super invested in, it's also something that, I mean, I don't know, I feel like kind of the prevailing attitude or opinion is that people aren't going to go see shorts on the big screen unless it's maybe like a program of the Oscar nominees. What would be your your thoughts on that? And how do you get people to come out to see shorts on the big screen? Is it really all that difficult as we kind of are led to believe by how many shorts we see on the big screen, which is like not many? I mean, first of all, I'm shocked at how many people go to see the Oscar shorts. I mean, it's like... I do it every year. It's like a tradition. It's, yeah. it's appointment viewing, kind of. But like regular people, and I say that, like my parents, mm-hmm. they go and see shorts. And then it's like, 
because I remember at Nighthawk, they show the Oscar shorts, and I would always have them put the Nighthawk Shorts Festival trailer on there, even though the festival at the time was in November and the Oscar shorts would screen in like February, March. But I'm like, mm-hmm. these people love short films, you know? It's sort of the best. I mean, because if you don't like one, there's another one coming right up that you might enjoy. <laughs> I mean, I think that I think that programming them correctly. I've been in shorts programs where it's a lot of one theme and you feel like you're getting beaten up by the end of it. I think that there's like a rhythm to shorts programming that needs to be <laughs> adhered to. Yeah, not like a two and a half hour block of like shorts themed around family trauma. Been there. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at the Shorts Fest or at any shorts film screenings I have done, they're usually the most instantly successful. I think part of that is when you're screening seven filmmakers, they all kind of have their own crowd and family and friends. They're going to market the hell out of themselves. Yeah. So it's wonderful. And then, you know, when you look at like No Budge and and how they have grown their short film program at Nighthawk, you know, started at Videology, then was at Nighthawk, Williamsburg, and is now selling out like the 200 seat theater at Prospect Park. You know, it's Mm -hmm. really like, I think people very much enjoy it. And I do think like younger crowds enjoy shorts as well. Um, mm-hmm. I love sneaking short films before feature films. So people are trapped to watch a short, a short film. Like I'm not going to put a 20 minute short film in front of something. Cause that's, you mm-hmm. know, I don't want to surprise too many people, but they always love it. They're always like, that was so great. You know, it's always like, you feel like you're getting, well, like I think of the IFC that had their, their doc shorts before. And it, I always kind of feel like I'm getting, well, something for nothing. Like I'm, I'm, I'm totally. a nice, I'm a big bargain hunter, and I love it. <laughs> it's like it's like a free app, you know. It's um, and then I hope too, you know, what will happen is like that filmmaker will make a feature film, and they'll go, oh my gosh, I remember when I saw that short film when it played mm-hmm. before this, and that was really cool. But yeah, I think that there's a hundred percent really good audiences for short films and there needs to be because outside of festivals you don't see them screened in blocks very often so uh future film is is female just finished up uh your yearly uh, kickstarter crowdfunding campaign i'm going to go out on a limb and assume that as you are a nonprofit, you are accepting donations year round yes all the time yes i mean mm-hmm. people can support by buying any, any of our merch and then donations are also really mm-hmm. uh appreciated because it's literally me. <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> and people are surprised by that. And I'm like, no, it's just me. That is a futurefilmisfemale.com. Do you have um, any upcoming programming that you would like to promote or, or anything to that effect? What else uh, would you like people to know about? Well, we open submissions for short um, filmmakers who identify as women or non-binary twice a year in spring and in the fall. Um, got a lot of submissions this year, so we're a little behind. And then um, we have a lot of upcoming screenings. So the first one I'll say is our next MoMA in-person screening is June 15th through the 30th. That's part four at MoMA. And then we have a lot of stuff coming up in the next month. Um, At Nighthawk, we're doing a screening of American Dream and Other Fairy Tales with Abigail Disney. Then we're doing all ages brunch screenings of Prince Ahmed with uh, Cinderella short beforehand. Mm -hmm. Preview screening of Baby Ruby uh, at Nighthawk. Uh, Preview screening of Give Me Pity. And then there's a new great book coming out by the authors of horror noir called The Black Guy Dies First, horror, black horror cinema from fodder to Oscar. 
and we're doing um, two nights of screenings at Nighthawk and in the at the American Cinematheque in Los Angeles, where we're showing Spider Baby and Attack the Block. That's just through February. <laughs> right, well, it's been great to to speak with you, and thank you so much. Have a great uh, have a great rest of your week. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having me. And thank you to Karen Coleman and Jesse Rifkin and yourself for listening to this week's episode. Please like, subscribe, and tune in to hear our next episode next Thursday. Thank you so much and have a good one.